Welcome to episode 1373 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs.com, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. How's it going? It's going well. Shohei Otani's back. How did, he, uh, how, did he, how did he play? Not particularly well, but I did watch the entire Angels game. What a fun team. Some might say the most fun team. <laughs> I watched him. He walked and had an RBI ground out. That's about all. He did hit a ball very hard that was caught at third base. And I got to see Trout do some fun stuff. And I got to see Angelton Simmons make a patented Angelton Simmons over-the-shoulder falling-down pop-up catch. And, uh, yeah, had a good time. Watched the whole game. Awesome. Hey, mm-hmm. that's, that's I mean, just <laughs> hearing you describe it, it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, if we ever do a a draft of uh, teams that it's fun to hear recapped, uh, maybe the Angels will be higher than I had them. Yeah, I was reminded that Jose Molina is the Angels catching instructor, and it seems to me that the Angels have on their major league staff or roster probably like the three players I've enjoyed the most over the past decade. Trout, say, Simmons. Wait, wait, Trout three? Only three? Not four? Well, I don't know if I'd put, well, Trout, Otani, and, and Molina, because yeah. I love Jose Molina, and then Andrelton Simmons, I mean. We've taken uh, Simmons, yeah, we've we've kind of gotten too, maybe too, too blasé about Simmons, but there was yeah. a, I feel like there was a period where Simmons might have been both of our favorite player to watch. Yeah, he actually threw a ball away. He made a, a very out-of-character throwing error in that game, too, but he made up for it with that catch, so yeah. Fun team. Lots of fun players on that team. Yeah. I might spend, uh, after after we record this, I might just go back and reread some of my old Angelton Simmons writing. Okay. Yeah, I, sure. I loved writing about him. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you, uh, what, what, was, what was the plan? What are we What are we planning on here? <laughs> well, we're doing emails, but I figured you are going to deliver on your tease of the true win versus no hitter stat blast. So we could do it now or we could do it later, but it is timely because we just had a no hitter right after you and I were talking about how some no hitters are not particularly impressive or maybe they don't tell you that much about the pitcher's true talent. Mike Fires, of all people, pitched his second career no-hitter. He became the 35th pitcher ever to throw multiple no-hitters. It was not one of the least impressive no-hitters. I mean, he he struck out six, he walked two, took him 131 pitches. And as we were saying, no-hitters often depend on great defensive plays. And that was the case here. I think he only had 11 swings and misses in this game. And so he gave up a lot of contact. And there were some really excellent plays behind him to preserve this. Ramon Laureano brought back a homer. There were wow. a couple other plays that were uh, sort of no hitter preserving. <laughs> every I'm sentence, you, every sentence you say <laughs> makes this seem less <laughs> impressive. Well, Keep yeah. talking. By the end of this, I'll be convinced he lost. 
did I mention that it was Mike Fires? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So if Mike Fires can do the thing twice in the only two complete games of his career, by the way, then it can't be that impressive. I mean, he's not someone who is known for hit suppression. That's not really a, a skill that Mike Fires possesses, except for two days when he did it as well as it can be done. So, yeah, that kind of reinforced my my theory that the true wind is more impressive. Mike Fires uh, is a career 081 slugger. He uh-huh. he has he has no extra base hits, so yeah. he will probably not have multiple true wins in his career. No, probably not. Well, since we're on the subject, I know that we usually save the stat blast for the middle of the episode, but should we just do it now? That would Keep be people fun. guessing. All yeah, right, sure. stat blast. Okay, let me start with uh, some some banter, uh, some some background, some ba- ba- background banter, I guess. Uh, Russ Goldstein, the creator of the True Win, uh, along with his friends known as the East Meadow Crew. Got to make sure the East Meadow Crew gets full recognition. I wish my not, friends had a name. Had a crew. Do you, do you have a crew? That was a, I grew up, a couple of my closest friends, whom I'll be seeing this weekend for a wedding, they grew up on Long Island, and their friend groups all have names. It's oh, like, wow. I, I've never had a, a name for my friend group. I wish I did. No, my friends, I've generally kept my friends apart from each other i i don't i really i generally like one-on-one interactions a lot and when you start putting groups together then i i get surly mm. i i feel like the the group dynamic the sort of the exponential growth of uh of of interrelational drama becomes <laughs> a little too stressful for my little human brain to deal with and i start to shut down and so i really uh i if i think about it i have like a lot of friends who just don't know each other at all yeah, uh, as I like it. So there are no group <laughs> names, but in second grade, I was uh, we we christened ourselves the Daredevil Club, Ooh. and uh, we were uh, we were you had to do a dare if someone dared you to do something, <laughs> you had to do it, and uh, we we did one dare. <laughs> it was to jump off a boulder. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a terrible <laughs> premise for a friend group. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good way to keep membership down. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Did the boulder jump thin the ranks at all? <laughs> uh, well, it thinned the premise more than the, the ranks. Okay. Uh, nobody did die. Okay. Well, anyway, Russ has uh, pointed out that you can now actually buy. I, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, but you can actually now buy a Noah Syndergaard bobblehead doll. A actually a Noah Syndergaard New York Mets true win bobblehead for forty five dollars, uh, and it is Noah standing on a newspaper. It looks like a New York Post, but kind of. <laughs> it's not a anyway, uh, and it says true win Syndergaard something game something the mound and at the plate, and wow. uh, he's holding a glove and also uh, a bat is is leaned up against his his thigh. This is. This claims to be uh, licensed, officially licensed, but I think somebody, I don't know, I don't know how commerce works. Uh, <laughs> you can buy this at a site that is not MLB.com, <laughs> but it says it's licensed. It also huh. says it's not a toy. This is a serious bobblehead. <laughs> Only serious bobbleheaders 
can play with this. Uh, don't play with it, in fact. Huh, that's interesting. So it says true win. So it, it must be a, a listener or a reader of yours, right? Because it, it's not like anyone else was <laughs> saying true win for <laughs> no. what that was. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it's uh, $45 and it ships no later than August 19th. So. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't know. How, again, I don't know, I don't know oh, how things okay. work. I guess it takes a while to produce a bobblehead. Bobble yeah. Mm, okay. Uh, so there's that. Uh, and speaking of Russ, a uh, few people have asked me for, uh, and I also had this question, um, and so I just took it to Russ, which is, does it have to be a home run for it to yeah. be a true win? Could could you get a true win if you produce the entirety of the the run uh, yourself without any help from your teammate? but you do it without a home run. So for instance, mm -hmm. a triple and a steal of home would be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, if you, uh, or, or, you know, a double and a wild pitch and a pass ball, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you really wanted to expand it, maybe a single and a stolen base and going to third on a ground out and scoring on a sack fly. Would that count? I don't know what would count. And so uh, I, I asked Russ, Russell and, and uh, he, uh, his, his ruling is that simplicity is key here. And I yeah. think that's right. I think that at this point, there's already confusion about what a true win is. And since uh, since Russ invented it, he gets to say, I think with every day that it exists out there, uh, Russell, will, Russell will, will sort of lose power over it, lose control of it. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and maybe at some point even no longer uh, have the authority to say in the way that uh, I don't care what the gift creator says the word is pronounced like. Uh, you lost it. It was too long ago. Sorry, buddy. Mm -hmm. And so, but for now, this is a week old thing. Uh, <laughs> Russ is the king of it. And he says uh, home runs only, which is helpful because you, you can't query very easily. The right, other ones. that too. Now that said, if a batter, if a pitcher triples, steals home in the third inning and is throwing a shutout, I am going to alert you, Ben, and everybody else. And I'm going to cheer for it. And I'm going to put Russell to the fire on this because mm -hmm. while in the abstract I'm, I'm all on board with the simplicity if it gives me something to root for in the seventh inning of a game uh then i might change my mind but for now uh home runs don't count now here i don't even know if i should bring this up because i'm afraid russ might lose some people but uh, should i even say this <laughs> all right this is controversial russ feels like an inside the park home run shouldn't count huh so interesting i mean <laughs> That, not that that ever happens, but but uh, when was the last time a pitcher had a, an inside-the-park home run? Yeah, I don't know. But his, Yeah, his feeling is that inside-the-park home runs are often the result of a misplay by the outfielder. But does that mean that only inside-the-park home runs that are the result of a misplay by the outfielder don't count? What if it's not a result of a misplay? So, yeah. I don't yeah, know. Don't, don't love that. I mean, you could say the same thing about like the the passed ball or the wild pitch that that was a, a mistake on the. I mean, it was a mistake by the other team to throw a ball that the pitcher could hit for a home run, right? Yep. And it's a mistake by the other team to swing at some pitches that they shouldn't have swung at, enabling the pitcher to record the complete game. So. I don't know. That doesn't bother me. I would object to that if it ever actually came into play, which it probably won't. And if the goal is simplicity and clarity of message for mm -hmm. the broader audience that is learning of this stat for the first time, then saying uh, you have to do a second query to see if any of these home runs were, were inside the park feels like uh, it goes counter to that. Yeah. All right. So the question, there were a couple of questions. This is going to be like maybe an all stat blast episode because there were a couple of questions that I thought I promised that I might look up. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first one was, are no hitters or true wins more impressive? Well, I don't know what exactly the question was, but are true true wins or no hitters more impressive? 
pitching wise, or I mean, I think we would deduce that probably no hitters are going to be better than average shutout pitching wise. But like, what is a no hitter? So the point is, Ben, that I looked up all no hitters since 1950. And then I looked up, well, let me just tell you. Oh, well, we'll start with that. Okay. So while you can describe a Mike Fires no hitter that starts to kind of look like just a pretty good start by Mike Fires uh, by the end of your description. And while you can even describe a no-hitter, say an Edwin Jackson no-hitter, that by the end doesn't even seem like it's necessarily a good outing at all, uh, most no-hitters are very good. Mm -hmm. And we should be clear about that. There have been, since 1950, 174 no-hitters. And the ERA, pitcher's ERA in those no-hitters is 0.02. So we're talking about good pitching. There's no arguing that. Even if you include unearned runs, the runs allowed per nine is 0.08. So good pitchers, and the average game score of no-hitters is 91, which is a very good game score. I took out perfect games. I, I further took out perfect games. That, that includes perfect games, but I feel like if it's a perfect game, we don't call it a no-hitter. If you mm-hmm. call it a no-hitter, it, it, it is already known that it was not a perfect game because we right. would otherwise be calling it a perfect game. So, so let's update that with... Uh, non-perfect no-hitters, 157 with a game score of 91, okay? All right, so that's our baseline. So how much, do you think that no-hitters are better than one-hitters on average? One-hit shutouts. Yes. Okay. So in one sense, you're correct. One-hitters since 1950, there are 600, uh, sorry, one-hit shutouts since 1950. There are 517 of those. The average game score is 89 which is basically a game score of 91 with a hit. Right. I forget. what is A, a hit is two points in game score? Two points for each hit allowed. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it is exactly the same with one hit. So you have a 91, add a hit, now it's an 89. But one hit shutouts and no hitters are actually f- kind of different in, in the sort of shape of them. So in no hitters... There are, oh, by the way, I just went ahead and also, uh, I did a third round of no hitters where I, I removed the games where runs were scored because those are weird games. And so, so now I'm dealing with no non-perfect no hit shutouts since 1950 and one hit shutouts since 1950. So in the no hitters, there is a 2.43 FIP in one hitters, there's a 2.34 FIP. So the FIP is actually better in the Uh one hitters than in the no hitters. No hitters tend to have more walks. In fact, quite a bit more walks, almost three walks per no hitter. Whereas one hitters have two walks per game per nine innings. Mm -hmm. No hitters have about 64% strikes. One hitters have about 66% strikes. So no hitters tend to be wilder than other games, which kind of makes sense, partly because you might be a lot more careful if you have a a no hitter on the line. You might be at, at a certain point in a no hitter, your goal is probably to protect the no hitter, mm-hmm. uh, especially if the game is not all that close. Whereas in a one hitter, your your goal doesn't really change. You're just still pitching as well as you can. Um, yep. For another thing, a, a pitcher who's walked seven in a one hitter might very reasonably be pulled after whatever number of innings. A right. pitcher who's walked seven in a no hitter traditionally has not been pulled unless the pitch count got outrageous. That was part of my basis for saying that the true win is probably better than the no hitter is that you that, only yeah. get left in to finish the true win if you're really genuinely pitching well and not just fluking your way for the most part. Exactly. Yes, we have a we have a selection bias here. Managers mm-hmm. are not treating all of these starts the same and only some pitchers are allowed to keep going to complete them. Uh, all right. So 
so we have kind of a complicated answer, which is that no hitters have a better game score slightly, but one hitters have a better FIP and are mm-hmm. arguably actually better than the no hitters. So then two hitters, I looked at two hit shutouts, which are much less common. There are about a thousand of those since 1950. And those are more like the one hitters, 66% strikes, 2.47 FIP, which is just a little bit worse than the no hitters, and an average game score of 87. So it's ticking down. That's another two points for that one hit, though. So it's basically the same uh, with with that one extra hit. And then I looked at no walk shutouts since 1950. And in order to get a comparably sized pool, or I guess a comparably rare event, I said no walk shutouts with eight strikeouts, which we see. We don't have a name for them, but you see them and you go, oh, wow, did you see his start? He uh, he struck out eight and walked nobody and threw a shutout. And that's a thing without a name. Mm-hmm. And those are better than everything, uh, kind of. Again, kind of. Those are obviously, unsurprisingly, have a lot higher percentage of strikes. They have a FIP of 1.02. Uh, which is much better. Now, that's not surprising. Two of the three components of FIP are walks and home runs, and we've already forced those to be zero. And the third one is strikeouts, and we've already forced those to be eight. So this is like a a perfectly crafted FIP machine, these starts. Uh, But obviously, the FIP is much better. The game score is 89. So uh, the average game score is 89. So we're back up to uh, about where a one-hitter is. Uh, with an average in those games of four hits allowed. So what what's better? Which do you think is better? A no-walk shutout, as I described, or a no-hitter? I guess the, the no-walk shutout. And so if I were to, say, like move this up to 10 strikeouts, then those now become rarer than no-hitters. Would uh-huh. you watch a chase? If that had a name, if if someone was chasing a no-walk, 10-strikeout shutout, would you <laughs> would you watch it? <laughs> I don't think so, at least now I wouldn't. I mean, if there were like some historical aura around that somehow, that's part of why you watch a no-hitter is that it it has this history and tradition, but it's also because there's a concrete thing to root for or root against no-hits, whereas, I mean, I guess you can root for the 10th strikeout or something in those games and you can root against a walk, but it's just not as satisfying. Yeah, there's uh, obviously there's there's something to the fact that we watch no hitters and we're talking about Mike Fires, but the starters that do the other thing, we we just don't even notice or acknowledge it, mm-hmm. uh, despite it being arguably rare, it probably certainly more impressive, uh, and yet not a thing. When a thing is a thing, it becomes something you pay attention to, and if it's not a thing, then it just passes. The average shutout, random shutout, no restrictions at all, just that it's a shutout since 1950 is a 2.55 FIP. So remember the FIP in the no hitters is 2.43. In the no hit shutouts is 2.43. The FIP in the non no hitters is 2.55. So there's really not that much difference there. They're pretty close to the same. And the average game score of those is 82. But shutouts have gotten much more rare because pitchers aren't allowed to complete them very often. And so if you just look at an average shutout in the 2010s in this decade, the average game score is 86 and the average FIP is 1.96. And so I have not put, I've put no restrictions on how many walks you can allow in those games or how many strikeouts you must have in those games. And yet the FIP in those games is much better than the average no hitter. And I don't know. I think that we might be getting to a point. I mean, there were only 19 shutouts last year, so that's more than there are no hitters, but Mm -hmm. we're kind of almost getting to the point where 
shutouts are as impressive on their own as no hitters, just because it's so hard to complete a game these days that yeah. in order to do it, a whole bunch of things had to be awesome. Uh, arguably more things had to be awesome than, than in the no hitter. Mike Fires completed his no hitter at 131 pitches. The overwhelming majority of pitchers would not be allowed to throw 131 pitches in just a regular shutout. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe one pitcher, maybe Bauer would. I mean, Bauer's gotten kind of in the high 120s a few times. Mm -hmm. This manager seems to let him do that. Maybe. Otherwise, though, it's just not really, it hasn't been allowed for the last five years. And so that is to say, what I'm getting at, Ben, is you can make a case that a shutout in the 2010s is by some measures as good or better than a no-hitter in the 2010s. And if that's what a true win is by definition, then you maybe could argue the game score is going to be a little lower, but the pitching might actually on average be better. Yeah. And he get a homer. And he hit a homer. So let's go to the homer part of this. Mm -hmm. So the average pitcher's win probability added in a shutout is about 0.45. And the way that win probability works, it doesn't matter whether you load the bases and get out of the jam or whether you strike out all three batters in the inning without letting any runners on because the same result has happened and it has all been credited to you. Three outs have been recorded with no runs scoring. And so it doesn't matter whether it's a no hitter or a, you know, 15 hitter win probability added is roughly the same. There's a little bit of a quirk in this that uh, some types of shutouts, the worse you pitch strangely in the, well, I don't even want to get into that. That's not worth getting into. So about 0.45. The average win probability added of the home run hitting pitchers in their true wins. So this is the home runs that they hit, but also their other at-bats, which are presumably on average very negative, is about 0.1. So you've got uh, your, your true win hitter added about a, a quarter of the value of his pitching with his bat in those games. Uh -huh. And that's a pretty significant, I mean, that's a 25% boost. And so if we're saying that true wins pitching are pretty close to no hitters in impressiveness and maybe equal, then you're just adding a whole quarter of the value of that performance on top of it with the home run. That seems like a, a pretty big tiebreaker. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's not nothing. That's not small. And so then lastly, we get to the question of flukiness, whether a pitcher hitting a home run uh, says anything whatsoever about his, I don't know, whatever his essence, his hitting ability, or whether it is just like totally random and it is no different, for instance, than giving him credit for, I don't know, like turning a triple play in that game or something that we don't think of as being sort of meaningful. Uh, and Andy, who's another member of the East Meadow crew, uh, <laughs> some of the East Meadow crew have been DMing me all week, which I'm grateful for. <laughs> Sounding uh, the tone of my voice sounds amused right now, but I'm also grateful for it. Andy notes that um, the six true winners this this decade were all pretty good hitters, um, and that uh, three of them had uh, four of them, in fact, had multiple career home runs. So they're not even like all that flukish. But I wondered about pitchers who hit exactly one home run if that means that they're better hitters or not. So I took all pitchers who have hit a single home run in their career since 2000. So all pitchers who have batted at least 50 times and have exactly one home run, okay? Mm -hmm. And I removed that home run from their performance. And then I took all pitchers who have batted at least 50 times and hit no home runs 
and I removed their best offensive act, their single best hit, because it wouldn't be fair to say, ah, you're worse when I take away all your best outcomes. So I have to take away the best outcome of the, the other group too, right? That makes sure. sense. Mm -hmm. All right. So I took out, you know, if you hit a triple, but no home run, I took out your triple. So pitchers who hit a home run singular, who hit a home run in their careers have hit 136 and slugged 159. Otherwise with a 221 BABIP, you have already forgotten those numbers. I will repeat them in a minute. <laughs> Pitchers who never hit a home run, once their best hit is removed, otherwise hit 114, slugged 127 with a BABIP of 194. So the home run hitters actually had about 22 extra points of batting average in their career, 22 extra points of slugging percentage in their career, and 28, 27 extra points of BABIP in their career. They also struck out slightly less. So while I was dismissive of single home run hitters because I saw Bartolo Colon do it, uh, in fact, it is telling. It does tell you that you are probably a better hitter than the median pitcher. And uh, this is true even if you never hit another one. All so right. all the evidence is what I'm saying. All the evidence is pointing to true win is a vastly superior uh, performance to a no hitter. And we should celebrate it disproportionately. Okay, I agree. I look forward to the next opportunity to do that in two years or whenever it next <laughs> happens or, or comes close to happening. Can we quickly, uh, last thing on, on the true win beat, mm -hmm. 28, I said I would answer this, 28 pitchers have thrown at least one of each in their career. Four, only four pitchers have thrown a no-win true hitter, a no-win, a no-hit true win. They are Rick Wise, Earl Wilson, Wes Farrell, and Jim Tobin few of whom probably you have a personal connection to, but those are the four who've done it. And uh, Kazuto Yamazaki, the yeah. friend of the podcast, emailed to let us know about two much better, I would say much better examples of yes. no-hit true wins that took place uh, not here, but in Japan. So in August of 1973, Hanshin Tigers ace lefty Yutaka Inatsu, after tossing 11 no-hit 11 no-hit innings already, <laughs> already a god, walked the game off with his own solo home run. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. Additionally, in 1967, Yomiuri's Suneo Horiuchi launched not one, not two, but three dingers during his no-hitter against Hiroshima, which only one major leaguer uh, pitcher in history has, has homered three times in a game, and he did not throw a shutout. He did not even get the true win because he allowed more than three runs. So uh, those are two very good, very strong examples. Yeah. I was curious after Kazuto emailed us that how pitchers hit in Japan, whether there's any difference there because the league is maybe not quite as high level as the majors. And so I figured possibly there's less of a separation between pitchers and all other players as there used to be in MLB. And it's kind of hard to look up those numbers, even on Delta Graphs, the Japanese baseball stats site. They don't have really easily accessible numbers for all of pitcher offensive performance. But Kazuto said that in 2017, Central League pitchers, that's the, the DH League, hit 100, whereas the league as a whole hit 251. Last year, pitchers hit 105 versus 259 for the league and that's like 1700 plate appearances or so in, in both years and so that's only batting average i don't know about the rest of it but that's actually a, a bigger gap between the league batting average and the pitcher batting average than we have in the majors which is uh, kind of interesting hmm. so yeah pitchers here hit uh, about 
115-ish or so. They hit 115 last year. This year they're hitting 116, So, and the league average is uh, in the 240s these days. So that's kind of curious and uh, makes those true wins even more impressive. Ben, I feel a great pressure to just summarize real quick. Can I just summarize sure, real yeah, quick? Please do. All right, I'm going to summarize all those numbers. Okay. Bullet point one. In the year 2019, throwing a shutout is arguably just as impressive or roughly as impressive from a pitching standpoint as throwing a no-hitter. Bullet point number two, hitting a home run in a shutout adds a tremendous amount of value to the performance. It is no small thing from a win probability added perspective. Bullet point number three, pitchers who homer tend to actually be demonstrating a true talent for homering. Okay. Well, we've, we've, I think, conclusively answered all the questions about true wins. And uh, next time one happens, whenever that may be, you will be prepared to regale all of your friends with facts about the true win. So thanks for covering this topic so so comprehensively. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like an insult and sarcasm, but I, I, uh, I actually am interested in the true win. All right. So we have some questions to get to here. Question from Alex. He says, I was curious if the gambler's fallacy still holds in baseball. That is, if a player is playing really well or really poorly over a significant enough number of plate appearances, we shouldn't expect his performance to overcompensate in the other direction in order to regress back to his preseason projections. However, front offices are constantly looking at opposing players to find their weaknesses and will mercilessly exploit that weakness as soon as they can. If a player is playing really well... Are they more likely to run into a cold streak soon after for this reason, thus going against the gambler's fallacy, or, or I guess supporting the gambler's fallacy in that case, but for a different reason? Supporting and uh, going against the fallacy aspect of it. Right. Yes, true. Conversely, if a player is playing really poorly, his team is analyzing the data and working with the coaching staff on how to overcome that weakness. Let's assume for this question that this player is on a sabermetrically inclined team like the Astros. Is it reasonable to expect that a struggling player will bounce back with a hot streak after a poor start? Uh, uh, so there's there's nothing wrong with any of that logic. Mm-hmm. And I would add to it, this is much more speculative and could be wrong, but I would add to it that if you believe in the gambler's fallacy, and you are in fact the agent of your performance and your belief in yourself is itself in some ways self-fulfilling, then if you are super hot and there's a part of you that's like, oh no, I'm not going to be this hot forever, and then you go 0 for 3 and you go, oh no, I'm cold, then theoretically you could be psychologically pulling yourself back to not just your established level of performance but maybe something slightly worse than your established level of performance but i mean you know i'm just suggesting that that is a theoretical possibility given my experience as a human being with a brain Mm -hmm. but not that it's probably true this i don't so you know like whenever russell would do things that look at like uh is it better to have a lefty starter you know after two righty starters or or something like that where it's like uh, does it make sense to have this little thing that seems like it would make sense he would usually find that yeah it makes sense and if you play out 45 seasons you'd get one extra run but really you should just probably play the best players that you have Mm -hmm. and i could like i sort of again like the the logic here doesn't seem necessarily wrong but it feels quite small like the odds uh, the 
the explanation of why players do well or do poorly are probably uh, myriad and generally speaking much bigger than this phenomenon, which might affect some players some of the time in some small way. I also think that the... uh, I don't really believe that teams are going to react to a hot hitter all that much by changing their plan. Like, I don't think that if a guy comes into a series, you know, 11 for his last 20 with four home runs that teams are like, well, now we should Mm -hmm. stop throwing him fastballs down the middle uh, or whatever. But maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of extra caution there. I don't think that there's that much though in like, say, advanced scouting reports that uh, makes a huge difference in the way that teams tackle or the teams uh, approach batters, especially Mm -hmm. batters that they've seen and known for a while. I think that for the most part, it's like you have like two plans for how to work pitch, uh, how to work batters and uh, do one of those two. So probably I, I would be uh, less likely to believe that a hot te- a hot hitter is likely to go cold uh, just because now teams are adjusting to his hotness. Yeah. I could imagine maybe in the past that being more the case, like you'd maybe put more effort into advanced scouting a guy if he was hot. Maybe there was more belief generally that hotness is a a real or powerful force. And so if a guy comes into a series hot, then that means you really have to worry about that guy. So today I would think that belief is reduced and also teams are already just putting so much effort into advanced scouting everyone all the time and doing so with so many tools and so much technology that wasn't available in the past that I don't think anyone would be like, all right, well, I I would have half-assed this scouting report, but this guy's been hitting well lately, so maybe I'll actually pay attention here. I don't know, probably not a, a huge amount to that, but The second idea, the idea that someone's struggling, I mean, I think that probably you could maybe answer all of these questions empirically if you constructed the right study. You could look and see whether guys who have been hot or cold are more likely to, to bounce back in the other direction than you would expect. And you could see also maybe whether... I don't know, for instance, slumps are getting less prolonged or less severe because one of the things that I heard from a lot of players when working on the book is that there are all these tools now that give them a baseline to go back to. And so when things aren't going well, they can look at their swing sensor data or they can look at some mechanical data or they can look at their pitch characteristics on high-speed cameras or see exactly what they're doing differently from what they were doing when they were performing well. So in theory, if that's the case, then guys should kind of be writing themselves faster than they used to when they didn't have that frame of reference that was easily accessible. So you could check to see now or in the future whether slumps are getting less long. Uh, On the other hand, you also have teams that are maybe better at exploiting players' weaknesses. So all these things are kind of opposing forces. And like you, I would guess that if there is something to this, it's so small as to be almost meaningless. Yeah, like if you had, so say you start with a pool of say 500 players and 500, uh, you know, 100 of them are right where their 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 normal standard of performance is and 100 of them are, you know, 20% better and 100% are 20% worse and 100% are 100 of them are 50% better and 100 of them are 50% worse. 
then the idea that the bottom quintile would be the ones most likely to uh, would be more like that they might be more likely to do something radically different and therefore become significantly better than they were rather than the, the second quintile. Right. That kind of holds up to me. Yeah. But I also feel like like of a hundred, like maybe two of those hundred well, I mean, maybe five of those hundred would be would be the ones that actually would try something radical. And maybe two of those radical things would pay off. And, you know, some maybe one of the other quintile are also going to do something radical and it pay off. And so, like, maybe one out of 100 guys would kind of become something new. That is what I said earlier. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it'd be hard to attribute, but I could kind of like, I could kind of see it. Yeah, right. Kind of. Okay. By the way, I feel bad for not even mentioning the the name of the team that Mike Firesnow hit, or maybe it's maybe it's nicer not to say the name of the team, but it was the Reds, who we are notorious for not talking about. I actually did a whole segment on the Reds, making up for all my years of not talking about them on the Ringer MLB show yesterday, and was talking about how they'd actually been playing really well, even though they haven't won a whole lot, and then they got no hit immediately <laughs> after that conversation. But the the Reds are, the interesting thing about them this year is that their pitching has been excellent and their position players and their offense has been lousy, which held up again against Fires. And it's kind of amazing. The Reds are leading the major leagues in Fangraph's pitching war, which if you know the recent history of the Reds pitching staffs, that's pretty extraordinary because they went from 2016 having a, a replacement level pitching staff basically being the worst in the majors to then second worst in 2017 to fifth worst in 2018. And now they are leading the majors. And it's also interesting because in 2016, at the time, they had a below replacement level pitching staff. And Jeff wrote about that a couple times. And uh, I had to break the news to him yesterday that their 2016 pitching war is no longer below replacement level, is now above replacement level. I think because they had bad framing that year, and framing is now part of the Fancraft's war calculation. So Jeff was pretty upset to find out that, that that fun fact no longer holds because it was one of his favorite fun facts that he had uncovered. So I think at the time that was like the worst pitching staff ever, and now it no longer is, but still really terrible. Anyway, they have, uh, I just want to console Reds fans. They have actually outscored their opponents by quite a bit. They've underplayed their base runs record by quite a bit. And they've allowed the fewest runs per game of any National League team. Only the Rays have allowed fewer runs per game than the Reds, which is partly a product of like Luis Castillo and Sonny Gray and Roark and some of the pitchers they acquired, not Alex Wood, who hasn't pitched yet, but also the fact that Tucker Barnhart has now apparently learned to frame pitches too. And so for the first time since 2012, they are not in the red in framing runs also. So sorry, Reds, you you are interesting and playing pretty well in a lot of ways, but you're also in last place and getting no hit by Mike Fires. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and they also had the... Uh... They also got the 
the Pablo fun fact against him. So that's two, oh, that's two episodes true. in a row we have talked about unusually good <laughs> pitching performances from unexpected people against them. Yeah, and then plagues of bees as well. So, yeah. All right, question from Kyle in Seoul, South Korea. There was just an odd play in the fourth inning of a recent Twins and Orioles game where the infield fly rule was called and CJ Crone missed the catch, but it was already called foul in the air and therefore dead if it landed, even though it landed on the line and should have been fair and an out by infield fly rule. At least this is what I think happened. Twins broadcasters Justin Morneau and Dick Bremer seemed confused too. This got me thinking, what if there were no fielders on the field besides the pitcher and the umpires had to decide off the bat the result of every ball? Ground out, fly out, infield fly, single, double, triple, etc. For balls hit in the air, they would have to make the call as quickly as possible. Why? (laughs) Much before the ball lands. How accurately do you think the umpire called results would be compared to real life results? I guess mentally projecting infield shifts would make this more difficult these days for them to predict as well. I don't know why. Maybe there's a, <laughs> there's a strike of infielders, but uh, the pitchers and the umpires and the batters are <laughs> still playing. I don't. I don't know. It's a it's a weird hypothetical. Doesn't need a reason. This is how you play baseball in batting cages when you're 12. Like yeah. Somebody calls whether it was a hit right, right away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I don't know how to quite overlay that experience on top of Major League Baseball uh, Mm -hmm. in Kyle's scenario. Uh, What I remember is that line drives up the middle were always good. Yeah. Well, I think if you used like StatCast, then you could do this very accurately. I mean, it would make games very boring, I think, because every play would have the average expected outcome. But of course, you can look at the no-hitter, and you can see that I think Joey Votto had a, a ball that had like a 650 expected batting average, and that may not have even been the, the highest one in that game. So you can obviously call things based on the exit speed and the launch angle and and the expected batting average stuff that doesn't even necessarily take into account the location, the, the horizontal angle of the, the ball in most cases, but you could factor that in too if you wanted to and you could then generate an expected batting average or expected outcome of of every batted ball off the bat and you could just simulate the entire game that way and uh, it would be fairer in a way but also boring yeah so there are four basically there are four parts of baseball there's the pitcher there's the hitter there's the fielder and there's the base runner and we now have expected stats some sort of expected stats for each of those thanks to uh Thanks to the the go zone, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, so theoretically, theoretically, in theory, you could play four different sports of baseball where all three of the other four skills were were basically just treated as as expecteds, and we only watch the one like the the one skill acted out. And so, like you could, or maybe it'd be the other way. You could have three and then you could remove one or the other. But which of those four, I guess, is the most fun to watch actually overperforming the expected? Because that's what the game is. Like in a lot of ways, the, the game is to create the most expected value out of a scenario 
and or to overperform the expected value of a scenario. So for instance, a pitcher is trying to throw a pitch that has, we don't have expected value of a pitch exactly, but throw a pitch that is expected to not be hit well. And we could, theoretically, we could remove the hitter and just say, mm -hmm. ah, that's in a location that is very rarely hit well, the pitcher yep. wins. Uh, or we could say that the movement or the velocity or the location is some combination of excellence and we don't even need the hitter. So we could watch a whole sport of pitching, right? Yep. Uh, against a computer and the computer against, you know, whatever, against a VR, against a robot, mm -hmm. against anything you want, whatever is algorithmically programmed to respond to the pitcher. But the pitcher is alive. The pitcher is has agency. Or you could have a scenario where the number of pitches is thrown randomly programmed and the fielders are programmed, but the batter is real and the batter is hitting a baseball that is delivered to him. And you get it? Yeah. All right. right. Which game are you watching? Which are which game do you think you would watch? The the game where there are only human pitchers, there are only human hitters, there are only human fielders, or there are only human base runners? I think only human hitters, right? You I, think? I, I think uh I think only human fielders. I think hmm. hitters might be my third. Huh. Nah, pitchers would be boring. I like yeah, pitchers, pitchers would be boring. Pitchers would be boring, unfortunately. I yeah. want it to be pitchers because I feel like the skill that pitchers have is actually the most interesting and the one that you that in some ways you can use the most imagination and you're it's the only one where you're in control and so you actually have your plan instead of simply reacting to a thing. But unfortunately watching the same thing over and over. Basically it'd be watching archery. Uh, yeah. with with movement with break mm -hmm. and i don't watch archery so yes. unfortunately although it'd be like watching bowling too and bowling is not a nothing sport like uh, it's not clear that any of these sports would be more popular than bowling so bowling might actually be, like if you could say oh yeah that'd be as big as bowling that might be the winner <laughs> yeah i mean i don't watch bowling but a lot of people do would it be as satisfying as bowling even? Because if you put some pins behind there that you were knocking over, maybe. But there's no like feedback like that if you're pitching. In bowling, you have the target and you can see it in a very satisfying way whether you hit the target. In pitching, you, it's not really like that. Well, you I'm saying a, there would be so. something visual there. There'd be a yeah. there'd be a there'd be a screen and a you'd uh, be like you'd be pitching to like a batter and bases loaded too, and he'd still hit uh -huh. the ball and it'd be fake. But yeah. but it would there'd be a visual there. I, I think it could also be somewhat like watching putts in a golf tournament, which mm -hmm. are probably uh, you know more interesting than. than yeah, I like watching putts. Yeah, yeah, putts are fine. Mm -hmm. So I am uh, now. I think that pitchers maybe would be okay. So then hitters, everybody likes hitting, of course. Yeah. But I feel like hitting would be kind of boring to watch in this scenario. But maybe not. I don't know. It's it's batting practice. Is right. batting it's practice batting. a sport? Well, people show up people early show to watch up. batting practice. Yeah. I mean, they certainly show up to watch home run derbies. Yeah. Once yeah. a year. Yeah. yeah. But they do show up to watch batting practice. And that's not even a challenge. That's that's just mm -hmm. like that's easy hitting. Right. So if you made it hard, then that'd be good. But then if you could if you had only fielding and you could guarantee a steady stream of plays that fielders had to run after and chase. And so instead of like in this scenario, there'd be no strikeouts. <laughs> There's yeah, no point in it. having the computer pitcher <laughs> strike out the computer hitter while the human right fielder like, you know, picks uh, dandelions. So there'd be a play every every pitch, 
Well, in that case, yeah, if you're not, if you don't have to simulate it realistically, and so you're just, because defensive highlights are my favorite highlight in baseball and maybe in all sports even. So obviously a lot of defensive plays are routine and, and not interesting. Most are, but you would get the occasional great catch, which would be better than anything you're getting really watching the hitters or the pitchers. So, yeah, all right. If I don't have to sit through the the non-contact events, then sure. And base running doesn't deserve to be discussed. So (laughs) so Kyle is suggesting a scenario where you have human pitcher, human human batter, but non-human fielder. There's no fielder. And since I am now, I think, on record saying that the fielder is the last one I would, would remove... Kyle has not asked us if we like this idea, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Kyle asked us how accurately do we think umpire called results would be compared to real life results. Yes. Uh, but I'm telling him uh, first and foremost, uh, get out of here. <laughs> so what do you pick? Do you like that? Do you, who, who are you? Rem- so, okay. So I'm not removing fielders because I want, I would take all fielder game first. I would take all pitcher game second and I would take all hitter game third. But now there's the question of if you had two human and yeah. one robot. Right. Because if is you're only removing is. one, yeah. then fielders are maybe the most dispensable because they're involved the least. Oh, so. dude, I don't. Unless we're ca- are, are we catching. Well, you need the catcher. I don't know if you remove the catcher. You, you have a simulated catcher, I guess. Yeah, you know, but, say, but you can't have the pitcher and the fielders. You have to because they're on the same team uh, no because you could still be playing against the computer and every team could be playing against the computer and your goal is to it, it is now a completely defensive sport so you could do mm-hmm. it so uh well, i forget where we were going i would not remove the fielders uh even in this scenario i think i would rather have a game that was all hitters and fielders huh okay and so just... i if i could if i had to remove one of the three i would remove pitchers if i had to remove both of them i would yeah, would remove hitters first anyway, okay thing. would you even know that the pitchers weren't real pitchers i mean they're still throwing real pitches so what's the difference even like the pitches are still coming in right you still need the pitches how does it even work if you take the pitchers out you could create a a, a much better pitching machine right okay well a much better pitching machine would be just as entertaining as a as a hitter right i mean i i guess a machine that perfectly replicates any of the the people just robot players and you can't even tell that they're not human players then then it becomes just as entertaining i guess no right? no you so. could you would know that it was not a real pitcher you would know that somebody battlebotted some some <laughs> machine that could throw pitches at roughly the skill level that uh-huh. a major league pitcher pitches uh-huh well the thing that makes this not entertaining, if we're just saying like uh, it's just it's just a simulated fielder who just is in like the average fielder position, has the average range, and I guess makes mistakes as often as the average fielder. I mean, that's why it would be boring just to have like expected outcomes of things that hitters do because what makes it interesting is when a, a fielder makes a play that he's not expected to make or when I guess he he flubs one that everyone does expect him to make or he's standing somewhere that you wouldn't expect him to be standing and all of that would be difficult to, to simulate which would make it boring just to have like the, the routine average outcomes of every play but it's getting complicated here <laughs> so I think we can stick with saying that uh, yeah it is getting complicated the basic yeah. question that I'm trying to get at is whose pursuit of some level of performance above expectations is the most fun to watch 
Right. And I feel like watching a fielder make a play that he's not able to make, as well as watching a fielder not make a play that he's not able to make, is uh-huh. more interesting than watching a pitcher throw a good pitch or throw a bad pitch, and more interesting than watching a hitter do a good hit and, and do a bad hit. But yeah. how accurately do I think umpire called results would be compared to real life results? Pretty accurately. Yeah, <laughs> I think so too. Similar to the question we were asked about like humans replicating StatCast sort of, you could do it. This would not be as accurate as uh, if you're allowed to use video and take some time and everything if this is just a snap judgment. I mean, we see hitters misjudge balls. We see fielders misjudge balls. So obviously umpires would also misjudge balls, but... On the whole, they've seen a lot of baseball. You can often tell if you're just watching at home. You can usually tell what's going to happen when the ball comes off the bat. Not always, but yeah, I think they'd be pretty good at it. It's interesting, Ben, because baseball is is at heart a game of tag, right? It's a complicated game of tag. Uh-huh. And at its origins, it was much more of a game of fielding. It was much more a game of who could yes. catch the ball than it was certainly of who could pitch. Pitching was was not really a factor at all. The pitcher was just there to be the, you know, to start the, the action. Yeah. And I, I, I would say that the origin of the sport would put the most value on the runner, the second most value on the fielder, the third most value, entertainment value or, or like interest value on the hitter and the fourth most value on the pitcher. And it has arguably flipped entirely. where it is now a game almost entirely about the batter-pitcher matchup, not just because we've got the three true outcomes world, but because that's really who the stars are, and that's what what we focus on. And we think of fielding as sort of a third-tier skill and base running as a fourth-tier skill. And so one way of thinking about it is to say, oh, wow, we've really gotten away from the origins. This game has really, you know, we've, we've lost what made it great. But another way of thinking about it is of over the course of 150 years of tinkering with and figuring out what we like about this experimental game that they were playing, we have come to the conclusion that the hitter-pitcher matchup is the interesting part and that the mm-hmm. fielder is the, the somewhat less interesting part and that the tag aspect of it is the least interesting part. Um, and so probably that is true. And so probably you should probably, uh, if you're replacing humans with robots or visual screens, then you should probably uh, ignore what I said and go runner gets replaced first, fielder second. Yeah. On the long scale, I think it's more likely that the game has evolved than devolved, right? So I think that's right. Because you do occasionally see that argument that like, okay, there are more strikeouts than than hits and that's not good. And this is the opposite of like what the framers intended. But uh, a lot of things that the framers intended have changed and the rules were constantly changing in the early days of baseball as people figured out what worked and what didn't. And so we're left with what worked. Maybe some things are not working as well as they did recently. That is a, an easy and compelling case that you can make. But I think on the whole, I wouldn't want to go back to just pitchers lobbing the ball, serving the ball up there, and then putting the ball in play. That is such a different way of thinking about the game than most of us do as we get older. If you think about the game, at, at whatever it is now, as having basically won a competition for survival and that what we are left with is always what worked, mm-hmm. then you would never say back in my day. It would always be that this that we have now has won, has won the, uh, you know, the adaptation wars mm-hmm. and therefore must almost by definition be better. I don't know if yeah. that's true either. But it's just like the 
exact philosophical opposite of how everybody from Roger Angel <laughs> to, uh, you know, to, to the least of us uh, tends to nostalgize the game. Yeah, that's right. Of course, players getting better doesn't always equate to the game getting better, but over the long haul, I think both have been true. All right, question from Anthony in Albuquerque. I was wondering if you guys had any insight as to why pitch speeds are measured and discussed in terms of miles per hour rather than feet per second. I realize that it's probably a result of using radar guns that spit out numbers in miles per hour, but pitches are in the air for about half a second and travel about 60 feet. They don't typically travel a mile or hang in the air for an hour. And uh, this is kind of interesting because this is a question that MLB Advanced Media has been wrestling with in the past few years when figuring out how to present sprint speed. Because initially, I think for the first couple years of StatCast, sprint speed or however they were representing player speed at the time was in miles per hour. And then they have switched to feet per second. And I know that Tom Tango and Mike Petriello feel pretty strongly that feet per second is a a superior measure to use for that. And I think a lot of the same arguments apply in theory to pitch speeds too. So I know that when they rolled this out, and Tango has tweeted about this too, but Mike wrote and introduced and said, why are we using feet per second instead of miles per hour? And His explanation was that, A, a lot of things in baseball are already in feet. When you talk about how far a home run went, you don't talk about it in terms of miles. When you talk about it in terms of, uh, I don't know, the distance between bases, whatever, it's it's usually feet. Even when you talk about the distance between the pitcher's mound and home plate, it's 60 feet, 6 inches. It's not what that is in miles. And so that's part of it. And then evidently also I think they found it was more satisfying to use feet per second because like anyone can get to their max miles per hour but usually they just are there for a fraction of a second like very quickly they don't stay at that peak whereas feet per second is kind of measuring your fastest one second window which is like seven steps or something and so that's a a little more of a sustained period so but you could you could if you wanted just as easily say that it's your miles per hour over your fastest seven step window or whatever. Yeah, I guess so. That's even more complicated. Than, well, you don't but, have to say it. I didn't even know that they had the window. Yeah, right. So yeah, that's true, I guess. But evidently, like Billy Hamilton didn't look as impressive according to miles per hour, because what's really impressive about Billy Hamilton is not just that he gets to a high peak speed, but that he stays there for a while and sustains it more than most players do. So I think that's why they use feet per second for that. And and also because I think it comes in handy for other plays, like when you're breaking down a play and uh, you're saying like, okay, this guy was this many feet away from the base when he threw the ball and his sprint speed is this many feet per second. So he was this many seconds away from the base. And so this was like the expected outcome of that play. Here's how many feet he had to cover. Here's how many feet the fielder had to cover. You're kind of keeping the same unit. So you could do all of this in pitches. You you could say feet per second. And the advantage of doing that, I guess, would be that maybe it would convey more so than miles per hour does, like just the reaction times that are involved here that we're talking about like 60 feet, six inches, and yet, I don't know, uh, I, like 90 miles per hour is like 132 feet per second, I think. And so that makes it seem really fast. Then you can tell like, oh, wow, the, the ball's getting to the plate in like less than half a second. 
maybe that is even more telling than just saying it went 90, which we know was fast, but maybe doesn't convey just how fast it's getting to you and how quickly you have to make that decision. So that would be the advantage of switching, I suppose, and disadvantages we're used to miles per hour and it works okay as it is. Yeah, and we're uh, used to it partly by by chance, right? I mean, the isn't it? We mostly know pitch velocity because of radar guns that were yep. originally developed to clock cars on the freeway, right? right? Yeah. And I think that's a frame of reference for all of us yeah, in, in we regular all know, life. Yeah. We all know what 100 miles per hour is. We all know yeah. what 80 miles an hour is. We've all traveled all yes. of these distances, all yeah. of these speeds right. in a way that makes it fairly intuitive to understand. I think that, yeah, you're right that feet per second, given the fact that we know 60 feet, six inches, would probably be pretty easy for us to have adopted originally. I think yeah. that given that that the distance from the mound to the plate is not like moving all the time or anything like that that like we all know 60 feet it would have it would be pretty easy to have picked that up yeah but we didn't and now Mm -hmm. it's much simpler to to it doesn't matter what you use really it really it just matters if you have a baseline Mm -hmm. uh that you can easily react to as a uh, human brain um, and once we all get a baseline of 90 good 80 bad or whatever um, then it uh, it's it's very easy you could we could have done it in I, I mean I assume they do it in uh, in in like in in other countries they use kilometers per hour mm-hmm. and I assume that it's just as useful for them uh, yeah as miles per hour is for us because after you've been following it a little bit and you know what a good number is and you know what a bad number is it doesn't really matter what what any i mean all of these things are essentially social constructs right the weird one ben the weirdest thing of all of these though is spin rate because Mm. spin rate is rotations per minute yes which a we nobody has any idea Uh, like we don't use rotations per minute in any other aspect of our lives it's not like when you're driving down the freeway you're like wow my tires are going eighty four thousand rotations per minute yeah. Like you, there's nothing there at all. Yeah. It comes from nowhere. B, it creates a completely weird scale of numbers where 2,400 is, say, average. But how many times does a pitch rotate on the way to the plate? Five? Yeah, not, not many at all. Does it even do five? I don't even know how many it does. I don't know what normal is. And it so that's like not in any way at all intuitive. So you both have the... Uh, the the problem that is being described here where you're using a, a unit of measurement that doesn't apply to the situation at hand, but also you don't even have a baseline of familiarity to it. And yet it kind of works. Mm-hmm. Works enough. Yeah. So what if a 2400 spin rate, that's revolutions per minute. So then per second, that would be 40. And then if a pitch is in the air for, let's say, half a second or so, then it's like 20. So I, I guess it it is rotating like 20 times on uh-huh. its way to the plate, something like that. So yeah. I kind of do wish that that were how we thought a spin rate, <laughs> like the typical rotations when it's actually in the air on its way to the plate. I think that would be more intuitive to me than 2,400 or 3,200 and having to figure out what that means. It doesn't really mean anything to me yeah. except in relation to whatever the average is and what other pitchers throw. So I think the benefit might be that people don't like decimals and you'd have to to accurately convey 
a pitch in is it rotations or revolutions revolutions, revolutions okay. yeah so to accurately convey revolutions on the flight to the plate well there's two 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 things for it but but one is that you you'd end up with decimals you'd to distinguish mm-hmm. between a good fastball and a bad fastball or a high spin and a low spin fastball you might have to go like uh 20 20 point nine versus 20.1 and generally speaking i think people don't like decimal points and now treating a 2460 rpm fastball with a 2250 rpm fastball is not actually simplifying anything you're still you have you're just there's no decimal point but you're still using four digits you're like you shouldn't it shouldn't be easier to do that but i think it is i think that for most of us or for many people, it's less intimidating to see a whole number instead of a decimal. The other thing, though, is that release points right. aren't the same place. And so you'd have to do revolutions per 60 feet or per 55 feet or per some standard feet yeah. instead of how many times it actually spun on the way to the plate. And if you're presenting it, in a kind of way of saying this is how many times it actually spun on the way to the plate, but then you have to explain that it's not because of extension and stuff, then it might maybe be a bother. Yeah, I think I'd still prefer revolutions per second to minute. Mm-hmm. That'd be better. Revolutions, so you'd rather it be like 40. You'd rather that yeah. so-and-so's got 40 and so-and-so's got 38. That does, yeah. 40 is a better number to deal with than 2,400. Yeah. I think most people would be more. Yeah. It'd be, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Fair the other enough. thing with uh, miles per hour, you do have 100, which just so happens to to work out yeah. really well. I mean, I guess 100 is uh, that's like 147 feet per second. So I guess you could say like 150 feet per second could be the the 100 miles per hour of that scale, but it's not quite as satisfying. 100 is is pretty satisfying, and it just so happens that that's like a number that people can actually reach, and and that's very close to the top of the scale. So. That's nice too. And as long as we're not using feet per second for other stuff in our daily lives and we all grow up knowing how fast cars go and experiencing that ourselves, it's just, it's even to switch to feet per second for sprint speed. I have to like think about it for a second and think about what that means. And uh, it's, it's just a little jarring. So, all right. I have one more. Can, can we do one more? Okay. Uh, this is from Colby. I recently saw yet another online argument between AL and NL fans regarding the DH. One common argument that I see is that NL managers have a more difficult and therefore more interesting job as they deal with pinch hitters and pitching swaps. This time, the argument turned to suggesting that AL managers can basically sleep through the games as they don't have to deal with the same things the NL managers do. My question is whether or not you think managing an NL team is drastically more difficult or intensive than managing an AL team. Also, is there evidence that shows that AL managers struggle with these decisions when playing in an NL stadium? You wanted to ask this question so that I could answer it? <laughs> well, so that we both could. But I think... I don't know if there's evidence. I don't know of any evidence. I, I think that occasionally there's an example of like a an AL manager who like screws up a double switch or something in an NL park. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've I've seen that happen. So I, I I can't summon a specific example right now, but I think it has happened where maybe a a manager was a little bit out of his depth there. But on the whole, I think the idea that 
NL baseball is significantly more complicated or full of strategy or or difficult for managers is kind of overblown. I don't think it's that huge a difference. It's probably not that huge a difference. It, the roster is a lot is is practically speaking smaller in the NL because yeah. you've got a you've got to pinch hit more, and so that means that. You are going to run through your bench sooner, and you're probably going to run through your pitchers a little bit sooner, even though you do get a little extra length from your pitchers because they don't have to face DHs. But there's a scarce, a roster scarcity that's a, a lot bigger problem in the, a lot bigger, I guess, for, from the manager's perspective, challenge yeah. than in the AL. And I don't think that's nothing. Yeah, that's something. You have to make a decision about when you're going to pull the pitcher. And it's a decision that the AL manager doesn't have to make. It's not like a decision that any AL manager is incapable of making. It's not like uh, you can have a manager who's good in the NL but not good in the AL or, or vice versa. I guess there's a skill, certainly, to deciding when to pull pitcher. And so you can maybe have more value as a manager or or subtract more value as a manager in the NL. But it's not such a difference that like you'd need a totally different skill set or or someone couldn't comfortably move between leagues so the one other thing that i've come to appreciate in the last couple of years i think is the the decision that nl managers this is not a big deal but the decision nl managers have to face about whether to intentionally walk the number 8 hitter with two outs and the pitcher uh-huh. on deck uh, or the number seven hitter with two outs and the pitcher on deck. And uh, it used to be that you just would. That I mean, I, uh, the other day I, w- when I was writing about Pee Wee Reese, I uh, noticed that Pee Wee Reese uh, led the league in intentional walks one year. Um, and I was like, wow, he must have uh, been quite the slugger that year. And he was just batting eighth. So, yeah. so he, it was kind of automatic that you wouldn't let the number eight hitter beat you with a guy in scoring position and two outs. And that turns out to be uh, maybe not the right decision it might be better to start the next inning with the pitcher so that you get that first out like kind of banked and I feel like it's I think that the numbers would show that it's probably better to pitch to the number eight hitter in most cases but it feels like one of the closest kind of 50 50 propositions that managers face and I do kind of enjoy the uncertainty and seeing what they're going to do and which way they go with and then whether it burns them. It's always very fun when it burns them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a nice, I don't think a few years ago I would have uh, gotten much joy out of that because it would have just been like, yeah, you, you walk them. Yeah. Okay. So we can call it there. All right. All right, a couple more things. First, when Sam said GIF earlier, it reminded me that that's sort of an underrated aspect of Jeff's departure. Effectively Wild is now an all-hard G GIF podcast, at least among the hosts. I know it's a silly thing to care about, but as Meg just said to me, Jeff's soft G pronunciation of GIF was truly his worst take. Also, as a few of you pointed out, I miscalculated when we bantered about the Royals on the previous episode. I was thinking that the Royals had played 25 games instead of 35 games, and so I said they were on pace for many more steals than they actually were. They They do lead the majors by 10 stolen bases as I speak, which is impressive. But even so, they're stealing bases at a rate of one per game. So if they keep that up and end up with 162, that would be more than any team has had in either of the past two seasons, but not enough to get that excited about, which maybe explains why I'm finding them a little less fun than I hoped I would. 
They're fast, but they're not off the charts fast. So the lesson I've learned from that is don't do arithmetic while recording a podcast. Also, some of you have asked where to start with Roger Angel. Sam and I and our guest Joe Bonomo did recommend and name check some specific pieces, but we didn't say where you should start. And I think one reason why we didn't say where you should start is that it almost doesn't matter where you start. If you're interested in his baseball writing, you can pick up just about any of his baseball books. The Summer Game, Season Ticket, Late Innings, Game Time, they're all good and worth reading. And you can tell from any of them whether you like Angel a lot and want to read more of him. It's funny, actually, having finished Joe's book about Roger Angel, I'm now reading Robert Caro's book, which is called Working. Caro, of course, the famous biographer. He is a comparatively young and spry man of 83. And Joe Bonomo led off his Roger Angel book with a quote from Angel, which says, writing is the hardest thing in the world to do. It's just as hard as baseball. And Robert Caro kind of says the opposite. He says that writing is easy for him, at least the writing part of it. The research takes him a very long time, but he writes so quickly that he's actually taken to writing longhand and then with a typewriter just to slow himself down. I am definitely more along the angel lines of slow suffering than the Caro quick copy. And it's funny that Caro is such a quick writer, as he himself points out, because his books take quite a long time to come out. But that's just because of all the research he does. Anyway, these two books make pretty good companion pieces if you're interested. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Following five listeners have already done so. Timothy M. Stackhouse, Kyle Talley, Eric Edston, Aaron Roth, and Larry Freed. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Two little plugs for the Facebook group where wonderful things happen on a regular basis. The other day, one of our listeners, Nicholas, posted this, quote, Earlier today, I was at Millennium Park in Chicago and saw a guy with what appeared to be his family, and he was wearing an Astadio jersey. I yelled, Astadio, toward him, and we exchanged smiles for the common bond created by this great, great baseball man. The rest of my group thought I was insane, it's entirely possible that they were right. First comment on the post is from another listener, Caleb. That was me. Figured you were a fellow listener of the pod. Long live Williams. And then Justin said, God damn, I love this group. That's the kind of thing that happens in there. Another thing that happens, our listener Michael Gates, as a wedding gift to Jeff, commissioned a video of Letty Harris congratulating Jeff on his wedding from not Cameo, but kind of a Cameo equivalent site. I will link to this video. As some of you may recall, Lenny Harris was a recurring figure in some of Jeff's early episodes of the show. And here's what he said to Jeff. Hey, Jeff and Brad, I want to wish you a happy, happy marriage on August 27th. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. I hope you guys enjoy the mountains and the blue skies and many more. Lenny Harris, enjoy. So thanks for the thought for Jeff, Michael. I enjoyed that. Lenny got the wedding date wrong, but otherwise it was very nice. Please replenish our mailbag. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. I am holding my book, The MVP Machine, in my hands as I speak. I just picked up my copies yesterday, so I can verify that if you pre-order it, you will receive a physical item. I think it's a pretty good-looking and good-feeling book. I am obviously hopelessly biased. It's got a very fetching spine. Nice color scheme. It's 
pretty hefty, good tactile quality, so you can have one in your hands in less than four weeks. And if you do pre-order, which is very helpful to me and Travis, send your pre-order confirmation to the MVP machine at gmail.com. And when the book comes out, we will send you some pre-order bonuses, an extra chapter and a conversation between us about the book and some additional documents. If you're on the fence about buying it early, that's a good reason to get off the fence on the pre-order side. So I hope you will. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Chad, that's you.